This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding. One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process. The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial. As trial lawyers, we pick up and move on and keep going. You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case. Whatever you think about, you create. Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Jody Moore. Uh, Jody specializes in nursing home and elder abuse cases. She just knocked it out of the park with a $13.5 million verdict on a Zoom trial, uh, which is really unheard of. I thought that people weren't doing that well with Zoom trials. And when I heard that uh, and about all the other great things she, she's she been doing, I really wanted to talk to her. Uh, so welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. So um, I'm an elder abuse attorney. I practice in Southern California. I've been doing this area of law since 2000, so 21 years now. Uh, I have a business partner and a couple of other lawyers in my firm. And this particular trial, interestingly enough, was started by two other attorneys. And so they brought me in in the last couple of months and to help them try the case. So initially, Susan King Gordon and Jennifer Fiore, um, who are in the Bay Area here in California, had the case. And then they um, brought me in because of the elder abuse specialty and, and my background. Before we get into the trial, first of all, what is elder abuse? So elder abuse is primarily comes in the form of neglect, right? So you have nursing homes, assisted living facilities, sometimes hospitals and doctors who are supposed to provide a certain level of care and make sure resident needs are met, and they don't do it. And, of course, these cases involve some aspect of motive. So why didn't they do it, right? Are they not doing it because they're saving money, because they're understaffed, because they have poor training policies? Um, And so you can imagine they're heavily defended that, Old folks are sick and frail, and bad things are going to happen to them, even in the best of circumstances. So our elder abuse cases are really corporate, systemic neglect cases where we're looking at what were the failures um, that let this elderly person down. And in California, the Elder Abuse Act also applies to any dependent adult. So you don't necessarily have to be an elder, even though elder is defined as 65 or older, which doesn't sound that old the closer I get to that number. Not anymore, um, no. <laughs> So it can also just be a dependent adult, so somebody who's physically unable to meet their own needs or cognitively unable to meet their own needs. They're protected in California under our elder abuse act. How did you get into doing elder abuse cases? So that's an interesting question. Um, My first job out of law school was doing medical malpractice defense, and that was just, you know, you know someone who knows someone who's hiring. So I found myself uh, in this job, and I really loved the medicine. I thought the medicine was super interesting. Every case was different. Um, it sort of fed my soul in terms of I'm always learning. So I really like learning new aspects of medicine. 
And after that job, I got a job in a nursing home defense firm just because I had that medical background. While I was there, my grandmother got sick. So my grandmother got sick. She had a stroke. And after her stroke, she ended up in a nursing home. And I was about a two and a half year lawyer at the time. And I went to the nursing home and I was sort of puffed up and I had my business card and I thought I know exactly what to do to keep her safe. And I toured the facility and I posted my business card on her cork board above her bed. And I said, you know, not my grandma, essentially. Um, and she was neglected. Oh, no. She had a, a bed sore the size of a dinner plate that we didn't know about until it was, you know, really advanced. Um, she didn't get turned in repositioned. We pushed the call bell. No one would come. We weren't getting her medications on time. No one was assisting her with eating. And so all these stories that I had heard as a defense attorney that I thought was ivory tower standards or expectations by families that could never be met, I was seeing firsthand. And I really thought if this could happen to her, you know, what's happening to people who don't have advocates and don't know how or what to advocate for. Um, so she passed away and I inherited $500 in her will and I quit my job and opened a bank account under the name of the law offices of Jody Moore and I've been doing plaintiff's elder abuse work ever since. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's my story. So I'm, I'm always I'm always litigating with a little piece of Grandma Ruth in my in my heart. Wow, did not expect that. <laughs> that's that's deep. Um, so you you're a young lawyer. You've got five hundred bucks in the bank. Uh, what do you do to build a practice? Yeah, well, I I started making phone calls. Really, I called a lot of estate planning, trust and estate lawyers, because I thought these are probably the folks that are going to see um, grandma and grandpa either declining and needing that type of service or after they've passed away. And that led me to just a small network in my local area. I also reached out to other elder abuse attorneys and basically said, I'll work for you as a contract attorney. And that's really how I started. Um, and then, I, you know, I got a couple of good verdicts, uh, trying cases with my now business partner, back when I was about a four-year lawyer, we weren't business partners at the time, and we were kind of on our own paths, but since we were younger lawyers forging our way, we tried cases together. So getting a couple of good verdicts, word of mouth, local bar, referrals, and it just built from there. That's great. So what did you do then to build the skills you needed to get a good verdict? You know, that's a... That's also a great question because in the beginning, I think there was a little bit of a sense of, I've always been a capable attorney, right? I, I did mock trial actually in high school. That sparked my interest to become a lawyer. I did a lot of the evidence and moot court type um, experiences in law school, you know, so, so I felt like I was a good tactician early on, but I sort of also was naive and didn't know what I didn't know. So there was sort of this fearlessness that just, we just went and tried cases and we were having fun and uh, the cases I think were righteous and and so we got good results. I do think there was a time where, um, you know, once you start getting some good results, you start saying, okay, well, how do I keep it going? And I really, you know, I went on the circuit and I read all the books and I looked for all the strategies and all the tactics and um, 
some of that actually, I think, maybe detracted from some of my natural instincts. Does that make sense? Like the voices yeah. get, get in your head and you're like, okay, well, now I'm, su- I'm supposed to do it this certain way instead of the way maybe my, my instincts told me to do it. So I'd say in the last three or four years, even, I've grounded back to my instincts, if that makes sense. And um, a lot of that was through some work with Rick Friedman, and I'm really involved with Hostage to Hero with Sari Delamod, and it brought me back to my roots, if you will, which yeah. is just sort of trusting the heart of the case, trusting my own skills and instincts, and then putting the best foot forward. So there's a lot of... Uh, ups and downs in between, but that's sort of the beginning and the end. Yeah, I, I found that you need to try all the things that other people preach because uh, you don't know what's going to work for you or not till you try it. But at the end, I mean, you can never, you can never win a case trying to be Rick Friedman or Jerry Spence or you know Keith Mitnick. You have to be Jody Moore. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Um, my thing is I had to discover who Michael Cowan was and I had to learn to like Michael Cowan to be Michael Cowan, which <laughs> took a lot of work. Uh, but uh, it, it's, it, it is more freeing, too, because, you, you know, OK, I have these tactics, I can use them. But for the, the big stuff, it, and the other thing is I've learned on this podcast, I've interviewed so many people, many people that have had success doing things in a diametrically different way. Like mm-hmm. one person will say never do this, and the other person will say I always do this, and they both win big. And so I, I don't think I think that having the the technical expertise to get your evidence in, uh, to talk to a jury, to handle getting objection is important. But after that, it's really just it's your story and trusting your story and telling your story in a way that's authentic. Uh, which I've realized practicing uh, my partner, Mallory, for example, she will tell a story very differently than I will. I mean, just stylistically, she's not me, but I've watched her become very effective in telling it her way. And if she tried to do it my way, it wouldn't work. Uh, And I had to realize that in coaching her and practicing with her, Uh, but watching her develop, it's just been, for me, it's been beautiful to see just someone come into their own and, you know, being able to be so effective doing it their way. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that um, I probably felt the most me in this trial than I felt in any trial. And, I, and that's kind of an interesting um, self-observation because it was on Zoom. So, huh. uh, but, but just sort of the rhythm of the trial and, like I said, coming back to my instincts and understanding um, where we were coming from to try to put on this case, I just came from a different place, and so it felt more natural to be there. What do you mean you came from a different place? I just I came from a place of these claims are righteous. This case needs to be tried, even though it's under less than ideal circumstances with the pandemic and video and all of that. Um, I had excellent co-counsel that had really done an amazing job working up the case. It was, in some respects, it was like um, this opus for me because I had been doing elder abuse litigation for so long, but they were all single cases. So this is the bed sore case. This is the fall case. This is the infection case. Um, and they had a common thread, of course, in terms of the corporate liability. In this case, every issue I had ever litigated for 20 years was wrapped up in one case. And so it just, it felt like a calling to me to be involved and to um, help put bumpers on 
you know, the outside edges of what the case needed to look like. Because again, it was worked up in a really exceptional way by the time I got involved. And it was just a matter of making sure it stayed in this sort of safe container where we didn't um, run afoul of the Elder Abuse Act or, or create unnecessary appellate issues. And, and we made sure that we channeled the evidence in a way that, that you know, hopefully with an amazing verdict, we would hold on to it. So tell me about the case. Yeah, so the case involves a skilled nursing facility in Alameda County by the name of Parkview. And uh, Susan and Jen had 10 individual plaintiffs that were all in the facility from 2017, some through present. And they all were neglected in um, different ways. In other words, they had individual harm. So we had uh, wound management cases that led to amputation and death, malnutrition and dehydration leading to profound weight loss and death. We had um, infection cases, so not only like wound infections, but there was uh, several outbreaks of scabies. We had fall cases. One gentleman fell 42 times. Another gentleman fell 17 times um, with hip fractures, brain injuries. So that's what I mean when I say there were um, sort of every elder abuse case I had ever litigated was sort of baked into this into this case. And then we have on the other side, I kind of refer to those as the care issues. Um, on the other side of the equation, we have sort of all the corporate governance issues. So. In California and nationally, a lot of nursing home chains are set up with an individual company that owns the license that operates that single facility, and then they have some sort of parent or management company that's really the one who's controlling everything. And it's set up in a way that the, you know, parent or the manager is trying to avoid liability. And in California, we have a, a specific uh, law that says only people who have care or custody of the, of the uh, residents are responsible under elder abuse act. And so there's hotly contested issue going on right now about what that means. Part of what came up in our trial is that we put on a case that basically whoever has control um, over the operations has the care or custody of the residents. And so that's where the systemic corporate control issues became really important about who's controlling them, the money, who's controlling the people, staffing, hiring, training, and supervising, and then who's controlling the policies and procedures. And that really became the, the trifecta, if you will, that we funneled all the evidence in under to show corporate control at the management level. And how were they able to get all you know these kind of disparate cases into one case? Yeah, well, that happened before. That magic happened before I got involved. But it was initially filed as a single claim. And so there was actually a motion to sever. And the court understood that the systemic issues, who actually had control, who was controlling the financing, who was setting the staffing budget, who was creating the policies, that those evidentiary issues um, and determinations by the jury would be the same regardless of the individual harm. And so that, I think, coupled with the fact that we were in COVID, courts were uh, closed for, you know, the better part of 2020, and um, we had five living plaintiffs. So in California, you can move for preference and get a preferential trial setting with your living clients if there's a reasonable threat that they might not live past six months to enjoy, not enjoy, but to see the outcome of the case. 
So the court took all the factors into consideration, and he said if these cases on behalf of these living clients were tried separately, you would use all of the resources of Alameda County the minute the courthouse opened indefinitely. And that's just not going to happen. So he um, kept the cases joined together. And that issue was uh, taken up on a writ, and, and the writ was summarily denied, and so the cases were tried together. That's good because I would imagine with you know some of the caps with I think it's micro in California, uh, yeah. Texas went and copied your caps in two thousand three and maybe maybe made them a little worse here. Uh, there is to spend the money and effort it takes to get the discovery you need and put on the experts to prove all that corporate control and liability and to get into the finances and everything else would probably be hard to do with just one capped case. Right. It can be prohibitively expensive. I mean, the, the brass ring, if you will, is trying to get to the punitive damage phase in these cases, because if you have an elder abuse case and the person has passed away, um, the way our statute works is it borrows a microcap. So the pre-death pain and suffering of the elderly victim who passed away is capped at $250,000. Then there's an argument if you have negligence-based wrongful death, it's also capped at 250. We have a half a million dollar, if you will, um, cap. But there's also the argument that if the wrongful death is caused by intentional misconduct, which our elder abuse statute requires malice, oppression, or fraud, or recklessness, um, then it's not capped. And so there's a lot of nuance that goes into, well, how much is this case really worth? But if you hit the uh, nail on the head and get malice, oppression, or fraud, which is what we need to get our elder abuse remedies against the corporation, you're um, going to have the door open for punitive damages as well. So it's sort of, your case is sort of over here worth maybe 250 if it's not that egregious, but if you do the corporate chain workup and you have really egregious misconduct, then you have this potential for um, obviously greater compensatory damages, but punitive damages as well. So it's be careful which cases you pick and which ones you um, do the full corporate chain workup on. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me, the, what, what's the trial story? What, you know, what was the case about? Well, initially, so the case was tried 100% over Zoom. I think I mentioned that. Um, it was four days a week, 9 to 1.30. And that was... Um, a couple, for a couple of reasons. One was to keep the jurors from having Zoom fatigue and to keep them engaged. And the other was just limited court resources. So their ability to manage a trial of this length and complexity, they had a lot of extra people managing the technology, you know, watching the Zoom screen, making sure people didn't drop off unintentionally, um, managing some of the electronic exhibits was took some extra effort. Uh, so managing the court resources had to go that way. And then in addition, the court was sensitive to um, how are we trying these 10 cases together. So he, I would say he trifurcated the case, but I think we're on like phase four or five right now. Uh, the first phase was that care and custody issue that we talked about. And so all that corporate control evidence came in first. And that lasted from, well, lasted about three weeks. So middle of June until just after 4th of July. And so the only thing they had to decide at that phase was who had court, who had care custody and did it include this management company. We won that 12-0. And I think that was really critical, actually, to how the rest of the trial played out because the, the defense was, well, the management company just has this contract to provide these consulting services. 
So every witness came to court and said, we're just a consultant. We're just a consultant. We don't, we're not the same as them. Uh, we're a completely different enterprise. We're just a consultant. Therefore, we don't have shared custody. But that really falls apart when the, just the consultant is actually controlling the money, the policies and procedures and the hiring and firing of staff, which is what ended up being true. They had to admit that and we had a discovery. So by the time we got to the punitive damage phase, um, they were saying the companies are so inextricably intertwined that we don't have independent <laughs> financial statements for these various entities that are responsible for punitive damages. So there was a, a betrayal, if you will. There was that we were able to point out the hypocrisy of the positions from phase one, even through phase right. two, about who's really delivering. Well, we deliver care at the facility level, but we have to call our regional consultant before we can modify a policy. You know, so that got a little more <laughs> and, and then by the end, it's like, we're basically the same. Um, so that story arc uh, being revealed throughout the trial, I think, was really helpful in securing the punitive damages and the finding of fraud to get to the punitive damages because the jury essentially rejected the propositions that, that they were just a consultant. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at CowanLaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. So what did they do wrong that caused all this harm to the nursing home residents? So a primary theory, of course, is understaffing. So we had um, evidence in the three years between 2017 and 2019 that they were below the state-mandated minimum 328 days, so pretty much a third of the time. And that's really unheard of. By the time the state minimums are in place, you know, facilities um, often ride that margin. <laughs> you know, they're like right above right. the line, but they don't typically fall below that consistently. So that, that was a big um Thing for us to be able to show that to the jury. The second part of staffing is, is even if you meet the state mandated minimum, you have to have sufficient staff to meet resident needs. So it's a subjective standard. And so we put on considerable evidence through um, an administrative expert, a nurse expert, and a physician expert that if you don't have enough staff, you're inevitably going to not provide the care that people need. Yeah. So in that sense, we had to go through the nursing process. So the nursing process is you identify what their disease or diagnosis is, you have a care plan for the treatment or monitoring that's required, you actually implement the care plans, can't just write it down and not do it, so we have to have implementation, and then you have to evaluate if it's working. So for each of those care issues that we talked about earlier, you know, for wounds, for example, the care plan needs to include turning and repositioning and offloading the pressure and following the physician's orders for a consult from a wound care specialist. Um, and in this case, the wound care consult didn't get followed. Um, the, the heels didn't get floated. Um, 
the pressure wasn't relieved, even though there were orders. So that's an example, but we could go through each one of those care issues and say the nursing care process broke down, and the, we're back to root cause analysis. Why did it break down? Because there weren't enough people there. And we had, we had testimony from the director of nursing um, saying, I don't really know how to do staffing grid based upon the acuity or the needs of the residents. We had staff um, say, like CNA say, I can't meet all the needs of my patients because I have too many patients assigned yeah. to me. And we had family members saying, you know, we pushed the call light, no one would come. So we, we attacked staffing from all angles. Um, and each, each way that we went at it, we had pretty compelling testimony that they didn't have enough staff. And I think just from a persuasion standpoint, you know, it makes so much more sense to say the company chose not to have enough people there as opposed to the people that were there just didn't care about the residents. Right. And and we, you know, I've been doing this 20 years and it's never about the frontline staff. It's always about the money. It's always about, you know, we're back to motive, right? It's always about um, how much money are they setting aside in their corporate coffers or to executive compensation or to funneling to sister companies, which is a big issue right now with nursing home litigation, is how many, how compartmentalized are all these other entities that are taking a piece of the pie, uh, which is also sort of part of this picture of making sure just the licensee with the license on the wall sort of has no money, so if they get hit with litigation, it would be difficult to collect a huge punitive value from them because they don't have a net worth that's worth anything. So really had us to deconstruct all of that um, and, and show where the money is going and, and um, peel back the curtain a little bit for the jury so that they understand that. That is a lot of work. How, how big of a, I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding. It's just to, to pay that much attention to a case and all the follow-up. Because, you know, I can imagine the games you're going to be getting in the discovery process. I mean, how big of a docket can you carry and do that kind of work? Yeah, well, um, <laughs> you're going to get a different answer depending on who you ask. And again, I want to shout out again to Jen and Susan because they did the yeoman's work before I got involved in terms of the discovery. And remember, I mentioned the case had preference. So when the preference was granted, it was January 2021. And essentially, you have to take the case to trial in 120 days. So you have four months to do that work. Wow. It's crazy. It's crazy. So, you know, Susan's a solo. Jen has one partner. Um, they each had, you know, attorneys that would, would help them as needed. But I didn't get involved until May. So by the time I got involved, they were running depots and discovery 24 hours a day. It, it, it was impressive to see. And it was one of the reasons I joined the case because I knew I knew that they had done everything in their power to set it up. Uh, for success, and they had, had gathered a tremendous amount of, of exceptional information by just working their asses off. There's just no substitute for it. Wow, but I mean, this, this doesn't sound like the kind of case you can do in huge volume. No, I mean, I think most elder abuse attorneys that are running that degree of a case, you know, are, are handling 10, maybe, right. maybe not even that. Um, you know, our firm uh, has more than that, but we also have, you know, five lawyers, and not every case goes to trial like that. Um, I I was personally working on this case for four months, pretty much nonstop. Wow. So my my firm was, um, shout out to them too. They were bouncing along just fine without me because they all rallied to the cause to make sure that our cases were 
managed in my absence, but it's not, it was not for the faint of heart, not, not for either of them or for me. It was a lot of work. That is, that is true. That's been one of the things I've always wondered about California is how do you keep the lights on when you're in trial for four months? Well, like I said, I have, I have a business partner. I have, I have three associates and they, they kept working on all of the cases. So, I mean, I, I work up my cases. I love doing trial work, but I also, I'm more of the big picture thinker. So I like to do the architecting of the case, the cases, the voir dire, opening. I work with the experts. I still love the medicine. I read all my own charts. So, I'm kind of in there sleuthing around and making sure that we know where all the bodies are buried. Um, but, you know, I don't need to be answering form rods anymore. So right. someone else is definitely doing that. So, um, and, and we did have the benefit of the trial was four days a week, 9 to one thirty. So, you know, there was a day to regroup and sort of handle yeah. other business, which was kind of what, what my firm did was set appointments for me on the day that I was um, not in trial. And we made it work. Yeah, just the mind shift, though, of, you know, being in trial for four days and then getting out of trial mode and being able to work on something else has to be tough. It was tough. And also, you know, I have a I have a personal life, right? I'm married. I have two kids. <laughs> um, I'm a partner in my firm. So I have management responsibilities. So there was a lot of uh, loose ends. But I will say, so I, I, I think, you know, Michael, that I work a lot with Hostage to Hero. And so I've worked a lot with Sari on mindset work. And I, I... I feel really deeply grateful that my firm rallied and they said, you need to go do this. We see that you want to go do this. So we've got you. And my family did the same thing. And my friends, like they all said, we see this is your passion. We know that this is the right step for you. So go and don't worry. Um, even my 12 year old, you know, wow. he leaves me a little note. I've got a little note here, back here. And, you know, like you've got this mom and don't worry. So, I don't know that I would have, I don't know that I would have gone with such ease if I hadn't done a lot of mindset work and sort of designed with my, my team and my family that this is what things are going to look like for a little while. And so I, I just feel really deeply grateful for that as well. And just for, because not everyone here has had the luxury or the, 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 the privilege, the honor. The privilege, honor of working with Sorry. The, yeah. I, I try to think of the same way. It's been life-changing for me personally. Uh, so for those that haven't, what is what do you mean by mindset work? So in over in from hostage to hero.com, you can find Sari Delema. And she's, you know, the attorney whisperer. She does a lot of consulting on voir dire, opening, and other trial skills. But she really kind of came to realize that um, you can have all the skills in the world, and if your head's not on right, or variety of reasons. We all have different reasons um, that you're not going to be giving peak performance, if you will. And so there's a lot of work going on over there about how you show up in your life, in your practice, in your relationships, and ultimately in front of the jury um, with your witnesses, with your co-counsel, with the judge. And so um, I've been practicing, you know, a lot of self-awareness and self-reflection to uh, make sure that the me that shows up in all these different places is the, the best version of me. And it's really helped with my getting out of my own way is the best yeah. way I would put it. Like the, the nagging voice in your head, well, what if I, maybe I just need to read that brief one more time, or maybe there's somebody else I could call who would tell me the perfect way to do this cross-examination, or what if I don't say this exactly right in the opening? You know, there's a lot of those um, 
things that happen as we, we stand up to do this performance because it feels like there's so much on the line to win or lose this case, and it's all up to me. At least that's the way I felt. And a lot of the work that, that I've done with Sari is, you know, what's really on the line is how I show up, and yep. the rest of it's out of my control. Yep. So I, I'm in a much better place where I can show up and just, put my best foot forward, my absolute best advocacy forward, and really be at peace with it and really being open to what the universe, the jury, the judge, whatever, delivers in response. Yeah, I freaked out some co-counselor, like, why aren't you worried? I, it's not my problem the jury gets it wrong. That's, the, that's <laughs> their job. My job is to go try the case. Uh, and it and it, and it, it takes a while to, to work with me and figure out. It's not that I don't care. I'm working my butt off. But it's that that's not my job. And if I try to spend energy worrying about something over which I have no control, that's wasted energy. And it just makes you, it keeps you from being the best you. It's funny. I went to go work with Sari the first time because I had worked on a case with Rodney Jew. Uh, I guess he calls himself a litigation strategist uh, in Napa. And we had had all these poster boards that we're going to use for my opening. And I had heard that she could maybe help me learn to use them more effectively. And I wasn't quite sure how to do them without being awkward. And, you know, within two or three hours, she had convinced me that I shouldn't use any because if I have a, if I have to tell the jury I have a simple case and then I use 200 boards to explain the case, then I have just, uh, my message is not consistent with my words. Uh, and then, so I thought, well, I'm going to, let me go work with her to become better at nonverbal. And I ended up doing, you know, a couple of years of her like VIP intensive coaching and probably 10% of it was on actual trial skills directly. Uh, yeah. But, but the other 90%, which was really on mindset and goals and goals and achieving things made me so much better in trial than any of the little technical things that I've worked on with different people over the years. Yeah. Yeah. That's been my experience as well. And so I'm, I'm really, really grateful to have found it. I found it at the right time for me. Cause I think yep. if we didn't have the pandemic, which was kind of when I went, when I reconnected with Sari, um, I think I would have stayed on the hamster wheel of saying I'm too busy. I've got mm-hmm. all these other priorities. How am I supposed to carve out this time to do this reflection? And and the pandemic sort of forced forced that on me. And um, I'm I'm really grateful for it because it's just um, changed the way it's just changed my outlook and my approach to things. And that's been all for the better. Absolutely. So let's go back to the trial then. How did you tell the, you know, I think one thing in elder abuse cases is telling the damage story because, you know, it's not going to be about the money as far as the medical bills and stuff. You have to actually get into the human damages. Uh, and I guess not all your clients are there or can necessarily communicate well. So what did you do to tell the, the damage story? Yeah, that's always a challenge in a lot of, a lot of trials books that are out, even Sari's book when she starts talking about like before and after damages and um, the story when they help and the story when they don't help, right? It, it's really difficult to tell in a wrongful death case when your client was 92, right? And so you really have to hone in on what that relationship, what what does a relationship mean, right? We're, we're just sort of back to like the, the space of what does it mean to belong to somebody else? And so I will say, I'll tell this this anecdote, and I don't know if you saw it on H- on Hustle Shapiro or not, but um, I follow Jesse Wilson as well from Tell the Winning Story, and he did a poetry challenge, and so from time to time I've been writing these poems since March, and I've never written a poem before. I I 
don't, I, they just instinctively, I just start writing and then this poem comes out. And so for our wrongful death damages, I listened to the testimony and I went home that night and I wrote a poem called Love Is. And it, it encapsulated the experiences that the jury had just heard about their relationship uh, between the daughter and the fathers. We had two fathers that died. And I've never done that before, but I delivered the poem as part of the closing. And wow. Yeah. So it's really about, um, you know, I'm a firm believer that the, that the time we have remaining is precious. And when that limited time is taken away, it's actually more valuable than when you think you have all the time in the world. And I've lost my own mother. Um, I lost my mom about five years ago, and I was just deeply affected by that loss. We had a really loving and beautiful relationship. And so there's just a part of me that I tap into that relates to what it's like when you're untethered from that physical human bond um, of a parent, or it could be a, a spouse or a child. And that's that's it to me if you can if you can convey the loss with love um then the jury does the rest of the work it's I, there's no there was no trick there was no like well for every day that's gone i want you to give 12 dollars a minute or there's there just right. wasn't it, it it doesn't come out for us that way it didn't come out for me that way um so we had decided what we thought the cases were worth and that's what we asked for um but we just told human stories you know we talked about um, you know, walking across the street to the park bench. We talked about uh, coming into the facility and watching the football game every, I don't even know, Sunday night football. Um, we talked about, you know, taking dad home for carne asada nights and salsa dancing for family birthdays. It's just picking those moments in time. And again, I give kudos to Susan King Gordon because she had that really deep relationship with the clients to draw those stories out. And um, for me, it was really quite beautiful to watch because normally I'm the one who develops the story, so I already know what they, I already know what they're going to say. But she worked with the clients to develop the story, so I heard them for the first time in the courtroom with everybody else. So and then had to do closing the next day. So turning it into a poem and then delivering the closing the next day was a really sort of immersive experience for me. Um, you know, I think there's some power, you know, last, my last trial, my partner Sonia did most of the damage witnesses, uh, and knew, I mean, I knew our liability story, I knew our trial story, but I just hadn't met these people. We, you know, we're busy and she was doing that part. She's a great lawyer. So, but I think there was actually an advantage to learning, hearing it for the first time while the jury was hearing it so that I had the same experience they did. Um, uh, I think there was something to that. Now, I don't know that I'm, I'm not recommending that you don't meet witnesses before trial. I mean, somebody needs to do it. Uh, and normally I would still would, but I, I'm just having had a similar experience. I think they're, you know, you always want to try to approach trial with a beginner's mind, forget what, for you know, not to remember the jury doesn't know what you know. And so you need to like pretend like you don't when you're asking questions so that you get get the same experience and ask the right questions. But I think there's just something to that sharing their experience that makes it easier to connect with them later. Well, I will say, just so I'm clear, you know, Susan put on the witnesses. So she 
she met with them, she bonded with them, she drew out the story, she made the connections, and then she put them on the stand. So it was really clear how uh, tender, you know, that relationship was that they had built to come to tell these stories. Um, But then again, you know, wrapping it up into a closing, that's what was new for me. And um, yeah, so I, 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 it was just a really immersive love filled moment for the for the yeah. whole jury i think and i i felt like i was a part of it with them uh, which was really really different for me now if you say no to this question well i'm going to edit it out so you know no pressure uh, <laughs> uh, but would you mind uh sending us the poem and letting us post it the show notes in case anyone wants to read it i'd love to yeah i've read it a few times um okay but probably in h2h so, but yes, I'll send it to you. I've been way behind on my H2H video, so I kind of scrolled through there, but I'm I'm 90% done with a book, and I have promised myself until I am 100% done with the first draft of the book, I am really trying to limit new things. Uh, and because I'm like a cat where if you shine the little laser point around, I will chase after everything else but what I'm supposed to be doing. So I have to just eliminate distractions. So I am a little behind on that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I understand. There's uh, there's so much information out there. Trying to catch it all is difficult. So I get it. But yes, I'd be happy to send it to you. Thank you. Now let's talk about the punitive phase. And so what did you have to do? So you got to the punitive damages phase. So when do you get the financial information that you're going to have to present? Yeah, so we got our damage. We got our liability verdict September 15th and 16th. We went to our punitive phase on October 4th and we got the bulk of the punitive documents the week prior. And when I say the bulk, I mean what they chose to give us, we got the Monday prior. And then that whole week we were in depositions and um, essentially ex parte communication with the court so that by Friday of that week, we got a data dump, but opening was Monday morning for the punitive damage phase. And our expert, our forensic economist, was um, deposed on Saturday. So there was a limited amount of time to analyze the bulk of the information. But we did take depositions that whole week. We took depositions of their um, PMK regarding financial condition, and we took depositions of their uh, the CEO the, um, and president of the management company that we were talking about earlier. And... Again, I got a shout out to Jen Fiore. So she's one of my co-counsel. She really took the lead on all of that. So like the 1987 notice and the subpoenas and the PMK um, information. But like I said, the way the nursing home um, operated, you know, their financials rolled up to top level companies. And of course, we couldn't put on any of that evidence in the liability phase. So by the time we got to the punitive phase, um, we had verdicts against lower level companies and finances and higher level companies. And there was a huge battle about how much information can come in about the higher level companies and is that going to prejudice the verdict and how do we, how do we just show the financial condition of the lower level companies? And it was very complex. Ultimately, the court really only wanted us to talk about the lower level companies, but he said we could talk about any money that left Mm-hmm. companies, right? Because otherwise you just siphon the money off and say we don't have anything. Right. Um, so we were able to talk about, you know, payments to related parties 
And then we were able to talk about sort of a concentrated fund where all the nursing home money came into this one concentration account. And even though we weren't able to say all the money in this concentration account can be used to pay for punitive damages, right, because that has resources coming in from other entities, we were at least able to show, you know, this is a going concern that has tens of millions of dollars coming into its bank account from various sources over time. And if they're really operating at a loss year after year after year after year after year, they wouldn't still be in business. So a punitive, they would be able to sustain a punitive damage verdict. And ultimately, we never said of X dollars, of X amount. And neither did they. They didn't say, well, we can't sustain a punitive damage verdict of, of Y amount. So we just kind of showed the money flowing in. We talked about the legitimate business expenses going out and that, you know, it's not a not-for-profit and a company isn't going to continue operating like this if it can't uh, withstand um, paying paying monies out, including in settlements and judgments. And we were able to talk about the fact they use this fund to pay settlements and judgments. So um, it was a little dicey there for a while until we could get all of the financial information, but that's ultimately what we were able to show. So what, and I think it was $8.9 million in punitives that the jury uh, allowed. Uh, what was your logic in not, in, you know, just trusting them to come up with a number instead of asking for one yourself? Well, so that's interesting because remember we talked about we have these 10 cases clustered together. But what we had to be really careful about is that we had to produce evidence of the individual damage of each plaintiff as if the cases were being tried separately, right? And so we had an amazing jury, smart, attentive. They were chatting questions and emailing questions every day, showing up on time. I mean, I was so impressed with this jury, and especially through all the phases, and, and it, it lasted longer than they were cleared for, and we still held on to our jurors, so I was just thrilled with their dedication. Um, we asked for, in the uh, liability phase, we asked for $2 million a plaintiff, right? We said, da, 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 you can go up if you think the harm was more egregious, you can go down if you think the harm was less egregious, but that's sort of a baseline for us. And then they did their own calculations, and every plaintiff, all 10 of them, had a different amount. Exactly what formula they used, we will never know, right? That's part of their private deliberations. But, you know, I'm happy that they found a different amount for every plaintiff. Yeah. It means they went through and they did a different analysis, and they really talked about um, how this individual person was harmed. So when we got to the punitive damage phase, we just asked them to do a multiplier. So we said, look, you know, somewhere between, I don't even remember, to be honest, I should know the answer that I asked for, but 5 to 10%, I think, 5 to 10x, the compensatory would be a reasonable punitive damage range. Again, you can go up, you can go down, but 5 to 10x um, is in the ballpark. And, and they did their own thing with that again. And so each individual um, person had its own mathematical calculation for the punitive damages that applied to that person. And it added up to $8.9 million. Yeah, I think it just goes you trust jurors. They try hard to, to do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a fine line between, you know, I'm a firm believer of giving the jurors the tools, right? The old adage, like, how do you get a $20 million verdict? Well, you have to ask for it, right? And so, on the one hand, I want to give them some guidance. I want to give them a, a, a goalpost what I think is is reasonable and fair given the circumstances. And I try to be reasonable and fair. I don't try to totally overblow the mark 
assuming they're going to give me 10% of what I ask for. I, I legitimately believe the number that I'm asking for. And then I, and then I turn to them and trust and empower them to do the right thing. And I believe it. I'm trusting you now. The case is in your hands. Go, go do your job. So I want to educate them how to do their job. I want to give them that baseline or that goalpost that I think is reasonable, that I truly believe in. And then I want to send them off with trust and empower them to do their job. But you didn't give them, and you gave them some guidance. You didn't just say, do whatever you think is fair. You said, well, five right. to 10 times is, would be reasonable, but it's up to you. And I respect you. You can go up or down depending, you know, that's exactly. So it's not like you just went in there and just, you know, like the poor people in uh, Pennsylvania that aren't allowed to suggest numbers at all. I mean, they have to find some way to hint at it or hopefully. Right. But- so we definitely, we definitely asked for it. Like I said, and, um, we, I want to give them some frame of reference because they don't know. They don't know if $100,000 is a lot of money or if $10 million is expected in a death case. They have no, um, at least that's my assumption. That there's no preconceived yeah. notion that the, that the jurors know how to appraise the value of the death in the nursing home case. So you got to give them something and then, and then turn around and say, I trust you. This is what I think. And you might have a different opinion and I trust you to do your job and send them off. Enjoying the episode? Do you wish you had Trial Lawyer Nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list, search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go. So this was a Zoom trial. So what's your just, first of all, just general impression now that you've done a four and a half month long Zoom trial? What is your general impression of the Zoom trial experience? Well, it's a little bit of a loaded question, right? I, I think for this case, Zoom trial was the right fit. But I don't think Zoom trial is the right fit for all cases. And what I mean by that is I think this case had complexity and sort of duration built into it. We knew it was going to be a long slog. And if we had been in person and jurors had to pay for parking and go through the metal detector and sit there from 9 to 4.30 and eat crappy cafeteria food and not be able to, you know, check on their kids' homework at the end of the day or whatever, I think we would have had crankier jurors or I think we would have had um, just jurors who would not have lasted the duration of the trial. So for... Something that's longer like this and complex, where you really want people who want to be there and want to do the right thing, um, the 9 to one thirty, four days a week serves us because they could come and give their attention, but they could also live their life. So for me, that's the blessing. That was definitely the pro of doing this on Zoom. The, you know, there were pros to the, to the parties and the attorneys, yeah. too. You know, we didn't have to wake up and go through the metal detector and lug our boxes and eat crappy cafeteria food either. So it, I do think to some extent it serves our ability to show up fresh every day and put on great evidence. Um, it was clearly harder to connect with the jurors. You know, it's hard to make eye contact. We had great technology. Susan set up um, basically a war room in her office. So 
We had uh, great cameras, great microphones. We had a podium set up and a, and a desk set up so we could switch back and forth. So the questioning attorney would stand at a podium. We had the whiteboard behind us. Um, we got pretty adept very quickly at running the exhibit through the, um, we had like picture in picture so that you could still see the attorney and you could see the exhibit. So the technology ended up working rather smoothly, I thought. And uh, that was probably my biggest concern going into it was that the technology would be terrible. And frankly, my biggest fear was that the jurors just wouldn't be able to pay attention. We have this super complex case and it's going to last a long time and the jurors are going to check out. Um, so I'm so pleasantly surprised that they were as invested and attentive as they were. Did you do anything just to keep, to mix up the, the visual, the view that they had rather than just have a talking head the whole time or? Well, like I said, we had the sitting and then we had the standing and sometimes we like, we did the examination sitting just because there was voluminous materials, right? So it yeah. might have been easier with some of the experts that were on uh, longer to be sitting so that we had access to our materials because you can't exactly walk around even in the war room. Um, I do think that it helped that we had the podium versus sitting. The defense didn't leave their chair. So they were they were essentially sitting together in a conference room um, and never stood up. So we, we were definitely more dynamic in that sense than they were. Um, we did use their exhibits pretty, pretty, uh, robustly. I still use, I'm a, I'm a butcher paper gal, so I like to write on the butcher paper and we were able to keep that in frame so that the jurors could see really key points being written down on the, on the butcher paper. But that was, that's about it. They were still, you know, they're still staring at the tiny little box. And yeah. If you look through the transcript and look at how many times it says, oh, am I on mute, you know, or whatever, <laughs> like sound check and, um, not getting back into, we had a lot of breakout rooms. So instead of a sidebar, you go into the breakout room and zoom. And so shuttling everybody out of the room electronically and then shuttling everybody back into the room. I mean, it took a little extra time. Um, I'm grateful that the pandemic forced everybody into a virtual environment. So the jurors, I think, had built up a lot of their tolerance and patience around what that looked like. If we, if we had just, ex we were part of a pilot program and there was never a pandemic and we just invited a whole bunch of people to do something on Zoom, then I think it would have been a nightmare. People would have just hated it. But I think because people have already adapted for their own work and they understood the technology and they knew how to be patient through some of those bumps in a row that we really got the benefit of of the doubt by the time our trial came around. And I'm hoping that in the future, and, you know, I've only done a Zoom arbitration. I've gotten ready for three Zoom trials, and they all either resolved or the judge uh, decided, I don't want to say chickened out because the judge might be listening, uh, but the judge decided not to have a Zoom trial over the defense's objection. Uh, but having prepared for them, having done an arbitration over Zoom, and having tried a, a live case again uh, after that, I think there is something we lose when we don't have the just being in the courtroom together, being able to interact with things, the eye contact, the facial expression back and forth. Uh, but I did like we were able to call because of pandemic, we were able to have the option of calling witnesses by Zoom mm -hmm. uh, and just not having to, you know, figure out how to get my client's sister in from North Carolina or even like somebody that really didn't want to come in, you know, didn't want to take time for off from work, but would take an hour 
break to go in their office and get in front of the computer and testify, or even, you know, uh, certain experts, like in economy, like in a lot of cases, the economist isn't that dynamic and you just, you're bringing numbers to present value and did not have to fly someone in or have them take hours and hours and pay them, but just have them show up by Zoom was, was nice. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it made made scheduling really easy. I mean, there was no like four people waiting in the hallway, right? Yeah. Like, if you had an expert on standby, they were literally on standby. Like, I'll text you on the break, and they would just pop into the Zoom room. So there were definitely efficiencies associated with that. But I I did miss the the dynamic of being in the courtroom. We had a really great judge. He was very gracious. He was very good. His courtroom staff was very attentive to the jury. Um, so in that way, it was just a, it was as positive an experience I think a Zoom trial could be. Really, it was. And I will say, um, I would have been miserable trying the case alone. Right? The fact that I was in the same room with my co-counsel. You know, we still fed off of each other's energy. Yeah. And I think that's vital. Like, if I was just a solo sitting here with my briefcase and my camera, I, I think it would be absolutely miserable because you need that energy um, that, that we gave to one another. Like, okay, you're up, or I'll run the exhibits, or good job, or whatever, whatever dynamic you would get if you were in a real courtroom with other people. <laughs> yeah. You still need that. So I was really grateful that, that we were together and that we could encourage and support each other. So what advice would you give to somebody that was considering, you know, the, the possibility of going to trial by Zoom? I guess I would give them the advice to make sure you don't do it alone. Because I, like I yeah. said, I just said I think that would be miserable. Um, you know, make sure you master your technology. And, and again, don't do that alone. We always have one person examining one person on technology because you just can't do it all. Um, invest, invest in the good camera, the good microphone, the good, um, we have the junction box, you know, that let us go back and forth between the different parts of the technology. That was super helpful. Um, you need to have a decent exhibit management program. So we use something called Ignite uh, through Veritex, which I'm not endorsing that you use an outside company, but the, the Dropbox type feature of the cloud server uh, was pretty nice because the jurors could just access the documents through the link once they were deliberating. Um, and counsel could access the documents. We'd just throw them in the folder and, and opposing uh, counsel could, could access the documents immediately. So obviously your te- technology has to work, but how do, you, how do you hold the attention of the audience? I guess that's part of it, right? I, I will say I've done a lot of work on Zoom in the last 18 months. I've done a lot of webinars and speaking. I've done training with Sari. I've done presentations with Hospice Shapiro worked on nonverbal communication. So I do think being used to being in this little box helps. So if you're not practicing being in this little box (laughs) and trying to communicate by the range of your voice or how you're breathing or how you're using your hands, um, effective use of pauses, when are you going to point, you know, and, and use the board, it's going to be much harder as well. So really developing all of those skills to be an effective communicator inside the Zoom box is important as well. Hats off to you for having the courage uh, to do it. And congratulations for being one of the few people to have successfully done it. I've talked to a number of people that have, have tried cases by, by Zoom and got verdicts with a little V instead of with a capital V. And they just felt like they didn't connect as much. 
Uh, there have been a couple other people that, that have done all right. Uh, but I mean, I, I think that speaks a lot to your preparation your and your story and your skill uh, to be able to go into a new medium and still get an incredible result. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was a, an experience for sure. One I won't forget. <laughs> So, Jody, thank you so much. Uh, it's been great talking to you, and thank you for joining us. Uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you, uh, maybe they want some ideas on trial, maybe they have an elder abuse case and they could use some help, uh, how can someone find you? Sure. Uh, probably email is best. So it's Jody, J-O-D-Y, at johnson-more.com. And you can also look up our website, which is johnson-more.com. And um, you can find me in the From Hostage to Hero.com uh, Facebook page. And if you join the H2H crew, I'm there as well. I'm pretty active in that group. And I, and I do encourage people to join that. that not just, I don't get any kickbacks or anything. I just love Sari. And I, she's done a lot for me. And, uh, and then you get to work with people like Jody too. So, Jody, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to seeing you soon. Hopefully, we'll meet in person someday. Uh, right. This Zoom stuff is great, but I, I miss the human connections. And thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.